Lord, we come before you this morning um, eager to bless you, knowing that you have blessed and overwhelmed us with your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray now as that we look at your word, we recognize it's not just words written 2,000 years ago, but your word is powerful and speaks to us and convicts us and guides us today. Would you help us to, to seek your presence as we look at what your word says this morning? I pray that as we hear your word today, that we would be transformed um, for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've gotten to know me before, you may hear that I used to be a music teacher. I used to work in a public school, and for a number of years I taught K-5 to music. And during those years that I was a teacher, one thing that always kind of amused me, sometimes annoyed me, was that every year it seemed like they would reinvent the way that they would want you to write down your lesson plans on paper. Wouldn't necessarily change the way you would teach, but it would change the paperwork that you would have to do. And you could, at times you'd get cynical about it because what would happen is it would seem like every single time they'd reinvent the wheel, they'd always act exactly the same. This is the right way to do it. It's the best way to do it. It's going to benefit the students, and it's so important that we make these changes in the way that we write our lesson plans. And, of course, it, when they say that every single year, you start to become cynical. I remember one time, during near the end of my time as a teacher, I remember um, they were talking about some change that was going to occur so that as a student moves from one grade to the next, from kindergarten to first to second to third to fourth to fifth to sixth, and so on, that they would benefit from this new system as students move through this from year to year to year. And I had a good rapport with this one administrator, and I knew he was just passing down what was from above, and I said, I raised my hand and said, they're not going to benefit from this. And he looked at me like, what? I said, there's no chance that within two years that this won't be replaced with something else. No flesh and blood students will actually move through this system like we're talking about because it'll be replaced by the next great idea. Well, he kind of like laughed a little bit and says, well, we'll see. But he knew that I was probably right. And as my sister can confirm, who still works where I used to work, yes, they did change it within a couple of years. <laughs> but isn't that how human wisdom often works? That we're always looking for the next great idea. And whatever new idea or new uh, philosophy or new concept that we come up with, we're always so confident that it truly is. We've truly arrived at wisdom. We've truly gotten there. We'll say something like, it's the year, it's 2023, we now know, you know, or whatever the current year is, it's this year, and we now know that this is the best way to do things. And we're always so confident in knowledge and in wisdom. It's just human nature, I think. But oftentimes, I think the ideologies and the ideas that prevail are things that tell us what we want to think, that tell us what we want to hear, especially if it doesn't mean that we have to change, but it means that other people have to change. I think one of the reasons the administrators, when I taught, liked to change things every, every year was because they weren't the ones that had to rewrite all their lesson plans, right? <laughs> it's easier to talk about change when someone else is the one that has to change. So the ideas that we cling to tend to benefit us. But more serious than something like that, I mean, you think about it, um, you, you turn on the TV, you turn on the news, you watch YouTube, right? There's always some new way that you're supposed to raise your kids. Or maybe there's a new way 
that you're supposed to motivate your employees or a new way to deep fry a turkey so that you don't burn a tree down on your yard, right? But we, we take certain things that are not so serious like deep frying a turkey and even things that are important like educating our children. But I think something very serious that we have to consider is what we do with the cross of Christ. What we do with the word of Christ in our lives. That's a timeless question that we have to answer. That shouldn't change with every new idea and every new fad that comes along. So as you know, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're, in chap- we're still in chapter 1. And we know that Paul was writing to this church in Corinth. They had a lot of great things happening in their midst and going on, but there was a lot of things that the church was getting wrong. And it's a message, message for the church of Corinth, but it also speaks to us today in the 21st century. Now, as we continue our series through 1 Corinthians, we'll see that because wisdom and power come through the cross of Christ, we should take up our crosses and follow. Because wisdom and power come through the cross of Christ, we should take up our crosses and follow. 1 Corinthians, like I said, will be in chapter 1, and we'll be picking up in verse 18. So it's 1 Corinthians, remember there's 1 and 2 Corinthians, the books. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. So I think the first thing we can see in this passage is that the gospel without the cross is not the gospel. The gospel without the cross is not the gospel. Now, we often see this contrast in Scripture in the New Testament between Jews and Gentiles. And we pulled back from this in the 21st century. We might forget why this is important. Of course, the Jews were the people of Israel, the ones that had been given the covenant of Abraham. And through them would come the Messiah who would, who, who would bless not only the people of Israel, but the whole world. So the Jews and the Gentiles are all the non-Jews that it's referring to. See, in Jesus' day, the Jews were waiting for this coming Messiah seen in our Old Testament. But see, their hope was limited to this coming king who would come and reign. See, at that time, in in the land of Israel, they were under Roman occupation. That was the, the time when the Roman Empire, as you learned in history class, ruled that whole area of the world. And so they were waiting with expectation, hoping that the Messiah would come and free them from the rule of the Roman Empire. 
And see, in that culture, what's interesting is that uh, there were certain aspects of being under Roman rule that were actually were good for them. One, it was a time of peace where you could travel all over the Roman Empire on the, in the Roman road system. But then there was also the fact that they weren't able to rule themselves. And so there was a lot of pressure and hope that this coming Messiah would come, kick the Romans out, and reestablish them. So what they were hoping for in a Messiah was one that would come and run the nation the way that they thought it should be run. And it would be beneficial to them, both in terms of power and wealth, if they were able to run the nation of Israel. But I think the next thing we see is that the gospel, in that culture, the word gospel is euangelion, and it can be translated good news, or it can be translated gospel. In that, in that culture, when a military ruler came in and defeated, the, defeated whoever the, his enemy was, and he would be the next one to come and rule, he might ride into a city on a horse with great fanfare to be like, hey, this is good news, and think about this. If you were somebody who supported that military ruler, you know, it was good news to you because it meant everything in life was going to change. Your city, if your city had supported that ruler, would be a more prominent place. You might be able to achieve a higher level of income, a higher level of influence because you supported the person who's now in charge. That was the good news and how the, what that word, euangelion, was sometimes used in that culture. But think about the gospel or the good news of Jesus. It was a different sort of good news. Jesus' gospel or good news didn't ride into Jerusalem on a horse with great fanfare. He came in humbly on a donkey. And though he will one day return to reign, as the Old Testament and Jesus confirms himself, um, we know that his kingdom will advance through meekness and suffering. Don't miss that. The kingdom of God is advancing through meekness and suffering. That's why the gospel is exploding in places in the world where Christians are persecuted. And in most cases, it's dying in countries where it's easy to be a Christian. His kingdom will advance through meekness and through suffering. The next thing we see, that the cross is a scandal to the perishing. The cross is a scandal to the perishing. I think you and I, we hear this concept of Jesus dying for our sins so much, we hear about his crucifixion so much, that I think removed from time and place, we don't understand how scandalous this message was. See, in that time, crucifixion was literally the most awful and shameful way a person could, be, could die. The Romans invented it, trying to come up with a way to figure out how to make putting a criminal to death as painful and as awful and as shameful as they possibly could. We don't even really have a modern example of this. We, yes, we do have capital punishment in our country, but usually, what do they try to do? They're trying to come up with the ways to make it the least humiliating and the least painful. And they only use it on the people who've committed the worst crimes. But in that time, only the worst sort of people would face the cross. So I, I, you, we sometimes hear about how when Jesus died on the cross, the disciples scattered, right? And we, we focus on the fact that they were afraid, right? But I think part of it was also shame. You did not want to be associated with somebody who was hanging on the cross. You would not want to hitch yourself to that wagon. 
because of the shame of associating with someone who was dying in such a humiliating way. See, I think they, the, the issue is you don't want to, if you care about prestige and power, you don't want to follow someone who is going to the cross. Now, Jesus did not meet the religious leaders' expectations because they were concerned with prestige and power. They were looking for the coming king to be one who would make their lives better in the world. Now, it might sound innocent. Think about this. They demanded signs. That's what it said in today's passage, that the Jews demanded signs. Now, it might seem reasonable, right? If someone came to you and said, hey, uh, he was making the type of claims Jesus was making about himself, you'd want him to prove himself to you, wouldn't you? Well, I think that's not quite what's going on here. Because if you look at Matthew 12, 23, there was a demon-possessed man, and Jesus cast the demon out. And what did the Pharisees and the religious rulers accuse him of? They accused him of using the power of Satan to cast out demons. So later when they come out back to Jesus again and they say, show us a sign that you are who you claim they are, you know what would have happened. If Jesus had done what they asked, they would have just accused him of doing it through the power of Satan. They did not want to believe because Jesus was not bringing a good news or a gospel that they wanted to hear. That's why when Jesus was asked to give them a sign, you know what he said? He said the only sign that they're going to get was the sign of Jonah. And he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign that they were going to get was the crucifixion. And to them, it would not function as a sign because they would reject a Messiah that would be crucified. The only sign, like I said, they would have accepted was if Jesus had come and done exactly what they wanted him to do and the gospel was on their terms. He was the Messiah that they wanted him to be. You see, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the self-righteous. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the self-righteous. If you think about Matthew 16, 21, the apostle Peter he had just proclaimed that Jesus was the son of the living God. Yet, a moment later, he rebukes Jesus when Jesus begins to talk about how he must suffer and die. That's why Jesus said just after this in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, there's a warning to all of us in this. I'm sure most of us here, this is as a Christian church, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. We believe that he calls us to follow him. We like the Jesus that saves us from the penalty of sin, don't we? We like a Jesus that saves us from the penalty of our sins. We don't even mind if he gives us a few rules to follow, because we like following rules, especially ones that we don't have a problem with anyway. You know, oftentimes, some of the things that the Bible says not to do are just common sense. If you do them, your life's going to be worse. So we like a Jesus that saves us from the penalty of our sins, and we are okay with rules, especially rules that we don't mind following. But in my life, I've discovered there are times when I was not embracing the full gospel, the gospel which includes the cross. I was content with the Jesus that saved me from the penalty of my sins, 
and that if I followed a handful of rules and didn't do certain no-nos, you know, I was, I was a pretty good person. And I was, sometimes in my life, there's a temptation, I think, in all of us to view the gospel in those ways. We're free from the penalty of sin, we're okay with some rules, and then we feel good about ourselves. But here's some tough questions. Uh, would Jesus expect us to make financial sacrifices to support a missionary? He wouldn't make us cut back on the amount of time we spend engaging in certain hobbies, would he? What about the TV shows we watch and the time we spend on our phones? He wouldn't have anything to say about that, all right? It's okay to just spend our times entertaining ourselves with other people's sins in the imaginary world. That's okay, right? Jesus wouldn't want us to make changes to there, would he? He wouldn't ask us to sometimes keep our political opinions to ourselves if it would be a barrier with sharing our faith, would he? No, he would want us to blast that person, right? <laughs> because we are right. Um, he wouldn't ever ask us to turn down a job promotion if it's not God's will for us, would he? Because he wants us to have wealth and prestige and power, right? That's got to be his will. You could probably add other things to this list, but we all struggle with this. You see, the cross destroys the penalty and power of sin. The cross destroys the penalty and power of sin. We like the penalty part, don't we? Notice that, did anyone notice that as we read today's passage, um, it's used this curious phrase, those being saved. Those being saved. Like in verse 18, Paul said, but to us who are being saved. If you're good at English, what tense is that in? The present tense, right? We like to think of be being saved as the past tense, right? Like Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. And that's true. At the moment of salvation, we were saved from the penalty of our sins. We were declared not guilty. We were redeemed and we were now saved. But Paul here says, those being saved. So our salvation from the penalty of sin happened at the moment we accepted Jesus. At that moment, we were redeemed and declared not guilty. Correct? Yet being saved here, I believe it's speaking more about our sanctification. So remember that word sanctification. We, we throw that word around, but it's, it's a process in which we become more like Jesus a process in which we become more holy. And that happens after we are saved. We, be, we, go, we begin this process of sanctification. In one sense, we are sanctified at the moment of salvation. But in another sense, we become, we become what we've already been declared to be. And it's a process that goes on throughout our lives, our sanctification. So when Paul's speaking of those being saved, I believe he's speaking of our sanctification in this passage. So that we've already been saved from the penalty of sin, we need to be saved in the present from the power of sin. See the difference? We are saved in the past from the penalty, but we need to be saved in the present from the power of sin in our lives. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 6-7, he says, We know that our old self was crucified, right, put to death with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
So if we want to have the power, if we want to have the power of the cross destroy the power of sin, we have to do what Paul says in Romans 6, 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. You know, there's a, we, are, we like that verse in Romans 12 where it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We know the Old Testament systems of how the animals would be put to death on an altar. And there was a pastor, he said something that I thought was kind of funny. He said, the problem with living sacrifices, like us, is that we keep liking to get up off the altar. That's the problem with living sacrifices. See, what we have to realize is that the crucified life, it precedes resurrected life. We want the power of the resurrection to help us in our time of need when we struggle. We need to, be, we need to experience the crucified life of dying to ourselves. We cannot skip the path of the cross. The cross is not just something we accept intellectually and covers the penalty of our sins, but the power of the cross comes as we daily die to ourselves and follow him. Now, when Paul warned the Jews that demanded signs, he also confronted the Greeks that sought wisdom. See, Christ crucified is folly to those wise in their own eyes. Christ crucified is folly to those wise in their own eyes. Now, philosophy was a big time in, in Greek culture. We know that in the Roman Empire, the Greek culture was still reigning all over the Roman Empire. And so in Acts 17, you know, Paul encounters this group of philosophers in Athens. And in Acts 17, 11, it says, now all the Athenians and, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They would stand around and they would congregate and debate philosophy. Now, in one sense, they were very open-minded. They were always willing to hear new ideas. They loved to analyze things. They loved to hear the latest idea. So they listened to Paul prattle on eloquently. But then it says this in verse 32. It says, when Paul continues to share with them, it says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So they didn't, they didn't want to hear Paul anymore when he started talking about the resurrection of the dead. See, philosophy and deep conversations, you know why sometimes people enjoy them? Because they're just intellect. We like thinking about things. We like coming up with new ideas. We like sounding eloquent. We like showing to other people that we're smart and we know how to say the latest buzzwords or think the latest thoughts to stay relevant. See, there's an intellectual danger of doing that. Um, in, in Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 7, Paul had said this. He said that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. Doesn't that sound like today? In the last days, people will be lovers of self and always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I think there's a danger among those who like to be intellectual, who are, have the title of being intellectuals, maybe even in academia, of always preferring the new and the exciting idea. Now, thinking back to my time in education, where did all these great ideas come, around, come from? 
Well, some person working at a college whose job it was was to sit around all day and think up new thoughts. And he needed to be published, or she needed to be published. So you, when you want to be published in academia, what do you do? You say, keep doing the things that we did 10 years ago? No, you have to be constantly pushing new ideas and new ways of looking at things. And I think there's a danger in the world of those who want to appear intellectual is um, to just things that glorify the person who says them. It reminds me of this quote of Abraham Lincoln in his farewell address. He said this. He said, Towering genius disdains a beaten path. It sees no distinction in adding story to story. It scorns to tread in the footsteps of any pre predecessor, however illustrious. It thirsts and it burns for distinction, and if possible, it will have it. See, the world's wisdom is information without transformation. God's wisdom leads to transformation. The world's wisdom is information without transformation. God's wisdom leads to transformation. See, it's not that those in the world who aren't followers of Christ, it's not that they never say anything that's true, right? We learn a lot of things, like thankfully doctors don't practice bloodletting anymore like they did 150 years ago, right? The most important fact and event in the world is that Jesus came in the flesh, died in our place, and rose again. That's the most important fact in the world. See, human wisdom leads us to all kinds of endless um, truth-seeking that never seems to find home. I mean, think about every year there's a new diet. There's a new exercise regime that's going to change everything, right? There's always new ideas for self-improvement, for how we raise our kids, for how we motivate people, or for how we budget our money. You name it. The world is constantly churning out new ideas. Sometimes it's just a repeat of something that was said before with fancy new words. But we're, we're, the world is always seeking wisdom but never actually lands at the truth. And what makes the message of the cross folly to those who are perishing, like this verse says, is that it requires something of you. The message of the cross, though it's given as a free gift when we receive it, 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 it asks something of us, doesn't it? Not, it doesn't save us. I mean, what I mean is like we, we don't obey the message of the cross in order to be saved. We, we receive it as a free gift, but then as, as followers of Christ, there is a cost to following Jesus. And what makes the message of the cross folly is that it requires something of us. On the one hand, it's a free gift, but it's nothing we can boast about, is it? It can't be earned. The cross is a call to die to oneself. It can't, or at least it shouldn't be abandoned for the next great thing. See, oftentimes the, this hard message of the cross, of dying to oneself, it leads some to water down the message of the cross. Some turn Jesus into this self-help guru who just said a lot of nice-sounding things and then tells us to be nice to one another. Of course, by nice, what people usually mean when they water down the gospel and says, Jesus says to be nice, it means that you celebrate and condone whatever sin is popular these days. Next year, it'll be something different. I think most of us here would reject the watering down of the gospel this way, wouldn't we? Especially if whatever those watering down do is something that irks us. 
But I believe we're, we also are tempted to change the message of the cross to suit our ends. I know myself, it's, it, there's a temptation if I preach or I speak to have eloquent things to say. But the gospel, to speak the word of God in a profound and a new way, to, to elevate myself. See, in some ways the gospel message is so simple that it does not require any eloquence to share. That's why young children can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus because it doesn't require high intellectual ability to understand the message of the gospel. This good news message is for everyone. It doesn't require high intellect to respond to or even to share with someone else. It doesn't require a seminary degree to explain to someone what Jesus, the good news of the gospel is. It requires nothing more than the wisdom that comes from God to those who receive the wisdom from God. You see, true wisdom glorifies Christ, not man. True wisdom glorifies Christ, not man. That's why Paul said in verse 17, as Pastor Marv read last week, um, that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So while it's possible to speak about the good news of the gospel in eloquent ways, it's, 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 it's possible to know the Greek word of the gospel <laughs> and share that with the congregation. But it's a simple message, isn't it? It's a simple message that believers are not only supposed to accept, but it's a message that all believers are told to share with those to a lost world. In, in verse 20, Paul said, in 1 Corinthians, that is, uh, verse 20, Paul said, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The simple word of the cross, though simple and easy to understand, though simple and easy to understand, um, will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's what it says. You may be mocked as you share the good news. You may be seen as a fool, but Christ will be glorified. Those being saved, that's us, receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Those being saved receive wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, wisdom is preceded by obedience. That is, in the Christian life, when we have died to ourselves... We receive the power of God to resist temptation, and we receive the wisdom from God. Um, so oftentimes when we receive wisdom from God, it's in those moments where we have died to ourselves and we are obeying him, and that's when we have the understanding. But oftentimes when we are not in obedience to God, that's when we lack also the wisdom that God brings us through his Holy Spirit. I love this verse in James chapter 3. I, I'm going to have Wanda put it up on the screen for us. In James 3, 3, 13-18, to 18, it says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, see what is encouraging about this definition of wisdom in James is that it is truly wisdom, right? It's not folly. I love how it says that it's impartial, open to reason, pure. Yet, the key fact of it is that it is a wisdom that brings transformation to the life of the one that possesses it. It's not just head knowledge. It is a wisdom that just, it's not just a wisdom that gives us something lofty to think about or consider. And we need to remember this because the word of the cross offends and humbles. The word of the cross offends and humbles. You know, in hindsight, I, off, I almost made this last point different. I almost made it, the word of the cross offends and makes us look like fools. Maybe, maybe that would have been more appropriate, but I think this summarizes it. The word of the cross offends and humbles us. As ambassadors of the cross, I think there's, a, there's a, some key things to this. We're not to go around looking to offend people. We're not supposed to go around looking to be foolish. I mean, that's not the point here. Okay? Um, I like what 1 Peter says. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I think sometimes Christians, we turn this into always be prepared to give our opinions to unbelievers about the sins that irk us the most. Don't we? <laughs> and I think there's two things that we need to make peace with as believers today. That One is that some criticism that exists in the world against the church, against Christians, is justified. I mean, think about it. There's a, a billion Christians or at least a billion people who call themselves Christians on the planet. We have to do some stupid things, right? So sometimes the criticisms of the world thrown against the church and against Christians are valid. And uh, we need to be careful not to be, to be defensive when valid criticisms in the popular culture come against Christians and come against um, the church in general. But on the other hand, we know that some criticisms and some judgments against Christians and specific believers are not justified. We know that sometimes we are slandered. You think about you turn on a TV show, and if, you, if there's a Christian being portrayed in the TV show, we know he's going to be the bad guy, right? Okay, that's the world we live in. We know that there are sometimes valid criticisms against the church, and, but we know, too, sometimes that we are unfairly criticized in the popular culture. But what we have a choice to do is we have a choice of how we are going to react when that criticism comes, whether valid or not valid. We can get angry and defensive, be like, I can't believe that they said that about Christians. It's so not fair. And we want to make public statements about how angry, and how angry we are that we're not being treated respectfully in the culture at large. But that we have to remember the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We are blessed when people don't treat Christians fairly. We are blessed when they say things that we don't deserve. See, the message of Christ crucified in our lives, it will be a stumbling block, to, and we will offend people by believing it. Even if we are patient and humble, and we, even if we keep our opinions to ourselves on some things, people will hate us because they know we don't think the way they do. But we're blessed even when we experience persecution. See, the message of Christ crucified, it will be a stumbling block to some, and we will be seen like fools to others for believing what we believe. Are you okay with that? That's the question I have to ask. Am I okay with that? Or am I always looking, I'm always concerned. I think sometimes we look and we think maybe about the good old days when it was more popular to be a Christian and when to be a Christian or a follower of Christ was a respected position in our society. But I think the reason we yearn for those times and we yearn for that distinction is not because we want to go back to a time when the gospel was preached further in the world. We want to go back to a time when we received prestige in the society. And we don't like to look like fools. But Matthew and Jesus tells us that we are blessed when others persecute us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Lord, that as we hear this idea of the, of the word of the cross, we recognize that you not only offer us the, the penalty to take away the penalty of our sin, but you call us as your followers to daily experience the power of the cross, the power over sin in our lives. We recognize that as we walk in obedience to you, dying to ourselves daily, we also receive your wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that as we live our lives and we share the good news of, the, of you, that we would expect and not be surprised when we experience um, offense, that we, when we offend others, and that we wouldn't be surprised when we are seen as fools. I, we pray that we would always represent you with grace and humility in the world, trusting that you see and know and that you receive glory as we obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.